All right, so like I said, we're going to be looking at the text that we uh, considered last week. In particular, I mentioned Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 9. And I'm sure that while we read this text, some of you asked yourself a question. And the question was, why is this happening? So let's read the text again. I ask you to stand with me. We're, remember, we are, we are in First Peter still. There's just a detour that we're taking because I read this last week. And um, it caused some angst in some people. And like I said, uh, the question came up in uh, the home groups. So Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3 to verse 6. Then the glory of the God of Israel ascended from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose waist was the scribe's kit. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and make a mark on the foreheads of the people who groan and sigh over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my presence, go through the city after him and strike and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly kill old men, young men, female virgins, little children and women but do not touch any person on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts. We do not come as though we know all that we need to know. There's so much we need to learn, and we need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And so I ask that you would give us your illumination. We have all that we need in your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is present here with us to take away the cobwebs around our minds. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ that is sufficient to uh, cleanse us of our sins. We thank you because his sacrifice was perfect and was the propitiation that we needed so that now the wrath of God does not fall on your your church, but it does fall on everyone who does not believe. Your wrath is real. Your anger is real. Help us to see that. Help us to understand this text. Give us illumination. Deliver us from the deception of the enemy, from the lies that are so prevalent today, may your truth be embraced, for it alone can set us free. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, beloved. As I said last week, a lie told once remains a lie. Right? Joseph Goebbels, a Nazi, said this. A lie said a thousand times becomes truth. So the key is to repeat a lie a thousand times. And who does that? The father of lies. 
He repeats one lie a thousand times a second, over and over, until we believe it and we swallow it. Hook, line, and sinker. That's a fishing expression, of course. So when we read this text last week, some of you uh, noticed that God says to the angel to strike and do not have pity. Do not spare. Kill old men, verse 6, young men, female virgins, little children, and women. Do not touch any person on whom is the mark. And we said that the mark was placed on individuals who were sighing and groaning over the sins and the abominations that were being committed in Jerusalem. I also said that, that God said, start from the sanctuary. Let the death, the execution begin from the house of God because the priests, the Levites, were the ringleaders. They were the ones who were teaching one thing but living a life of debauchery and adultery, idolatry, greed, wickedness of all sorts. If you look in the book of Kings, you'll discover that there were sodomites in the temple of God. That's how bad it had become. So in the temple, there were those practicing homosexuality. And God said, that's enough. Now remember, in the time of Moses, God had said very clearly, if you live like the people that are currently in the land, like the Canaanites, or the people from whom I drew you, the Egyptians, I will make sure the land spews you out, just as it spews out the Canaanites. Just as the land got, got kicks out, vomits out the Canaanites for their lewd practices. And if you want to know what they are, and you're on your own, read Leviticus 18. If you act that way, if you behave this way, I will make sure the land kicks you out. Just because you're chosen doesn't mean you could do what you like. You're my people. You're going to be holy as I am holy. God made it very clear. When does he spew them out? Hundreds of years later. Hundreds. They were dis disobedient, rebellious. They did not give heed to the law, except for a few people. The majority did not obey God. And then in the days of Ezekiel, after Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied and warned them, finally God says, that's enough. Unless the Babylonians come in, and the Babylonians were cruel, a cruel and vicious army. They would take pregnant women, open their stomach, take the unborn, and crush them against rocks. They would do this to send a message to anyone who they were going to invade. So they would quickly yield and not fight the Babylonians. They would show them that we are ruthless, we don't care about life. We're going to crush you. People of Jerusalem felt that they were protected because they had the temple, they had the priesthood, God had chosen them. They hid behind these truths, which are truths, but they twisted them. God's grace gave them license 
to sin. And because they sinned and practiced all sorts of evil, God said, that's enough. The land is spewing you out. And 4,000 of them eventually were deported to Babylon. The rest were all killed. All of them killed. And as it says here, children, women, female virgins, elderly. So you look at this, you say, wow, these are all the weak, right? A female virgin can't fight. An elderly person can't fight. A child cannot fight. Why would God do this? So here's the question that I received from the home group, uh, one home group. Asked me this question, and it may have come up in other home groups for all I know. The question I received was this one here. Why were children not spared, and what is their final end? That's a good question, isn't it? Why were children not spared? When reading Scripture, one thing is crystal clear. Please keep this in mind. One thing is very clear. Divine revelation has a specific purpose. It is not to feed our curiosity. Divine revelation has the goal of transformation or warning. That's it. God warns. God transforms. If I believe, I'm transformed. If I don't, I'm warned. And he warns until judgment comes. Warning, transformation. Nothing more. God did not give us his word to answer every possible question that comes into our mind. Paul says, and he knew a lot, he says these words in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and Paul knew far more than anyone here, than anyone else who lived after, and even the apostles themselves. Peter says, according to the wisdom God has given Paul. Peter did not have the understanding and the insight that Paul had. He was an apostle appointed by Christ. For, so therefore, now we see dimly. But then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Isn't that wonderful? That all the other questions, like for example... How many animals entered the ark of Noah? Some people can't sleep at night because they don't have that answer. Right? They just need to know how many animals. Well, if you're a believer, don't worry about it. In fact, even if you're an unbeliever, you're going to find out. Everyone's going to find out. We're all going to find out. Who did Cain marry? Some people just can't go to sleep because of that. They just need to know who Cain married. That's a very... Very troubling question for some. It's curiosity. Once you have that answer, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't warn you. It's just feeding curiosity. For this reason, Moses said these words just before he died. After living with the Israelites and perhaps hearing every kind of stupid question, he must have said, that's enough. And this is what he said in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. You have no idea how many times while I'm sharing the gospel with someone, can you please tell me something? Who did Cain marry? That just comes up. Because if they get the answer to that, oh yeah, I'm going to believe the entire scriptures. Really? That's not true at all. It's just a smokescreen that people throw up. That's why Mark Twain said these words. Mark Twain said, it isn't the part of the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It is the part of the Bible that I perfectly understand that bothers me. Who cares where Cain got got his wife? The part of the Bible you understand, are you obedient? That's what matters. Because if we're not, then we have to answer. However, this question is a good question because it troubles us when we read it. The death of children in Scripture, it always leaves us a little perplexed. In several passages, we read of children, as well as adults, like in this one, being killed. The death of a child seems stridently opposite to a merciful God. So we ask ourselves, is God harsh? Is he a monster? Is Jesus a softer God? And those are questions that come with this one here. So here's the first part of the answer. First part is this. Life is a gift that is not earned. No one on earth deserves life. Not even angels deserve life. Did you know that? Angels don't deserve heaven, and they don't deserve life. What did an angel do to deserve life? What did he do? What have you done to deserve life? What? Please. Someone, anybody. (laughs) We didn't do anything. We can't do a thing to deserve life. Life is a gift. Every blade of grass is a gift. Every tree that grows is a gift. Every sunshine, every ray, every raindrop, the oxygen we breathe, everything is a gift from the merciful hand of God. You know how people will, how they're going to respond when they stand before a holy God? Because God is just going to give them a, 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 a video, play, minute by minute play, of all the gifts he gave them throughout their lives and how often they just cursed him and denied him and blasphemed his name. And they're going to shrink shrink in holy fear. Life is a gift. In him, we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. We live in him. We move in him. We can't move an inch. We can't, we don't have the next second unless he says so. We live We move, we have our being. So does God have the right to take away life? Of course. He's the author of it. I can kill someone, that's murder. God cannot murder anyone. God gives life, 
and God takes it away. It's his perfect right because he created. He's not doing anything wrong. So every life that is removed in whatever means possible is always, always, always within his will. And God is not unrighteous. I would be unrighteous if I were to take your life. You would be unrighteous if you were to take my life. God is not unrighteous. Why? Why is he not unrighteous? Because he's the author of it. And he could very well take it away. But here's a second reason that's even more staggering and mind-boggling than the first. The second reason is that every one of us is born in sin. Every single one. Let's imagine you have a Ferrari. And you are Mr. Vincenzo Enzo Ferrari. And this Ferrari represents you. This Ferrari brings you glory. This Ferrari is a car that is created by you, designed by you, built by you, and now it's placed on the road. Now let's imagine this Ferrari does not perform as it was intended to perform. Would Enzo Ferrari allow that Ferrari to be on the road? Would he? No, he wouldn't. And if he could not fix it, he would destroy it, dismantle it altogether. Because Enzo Ferrari cares about his glory, cares about his name. We do that with everything. Now, we have fallen short of the glory of God. In the day that you eat of this tree, you shall die. You're no longer bringing glory to me. You are created in my image to represent me on earth. You are the ones who are my representatives. That's what it means to be imago Dei, image of God. That's why we, men were not to create any image. Because we are the image of God. Don't create an image. Don't worship images. Worship me and remember you are representing me. But the moment we disobeyed, sin came in the picture. And Adam was supposed to die and Eve that day. But God doesn't let them die immediately. God lets them live and die much later. But did God have a right to kill them immediately? Yes. Yes. Did God have a right to destroy humanity? Yes. Yes. That's why David said these words. After, here's a man of God who was very obedient to the Lord and very used by God. And he said these words in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Notice that. In sin I was conceived. At the moment of conception, my mother's sin nature was passed on to me. That very moment. So does a child deserve to live? No. No one deserves to live. No one at all. We don't deserve to live, A, because he has the right. He gives us life. And him we live and move and have our being. And he can take it away anytime he wishes. 
Why do we live? Because God is merciful. But he's extra merciful even though we're sinners. So what is God doing with his people? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. 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 Because God is slow to anger. But his anger is real. It's very real. And when we say to God, I deserve to live and I deserve life and I deserve blessings and I deserve to have everything I want, we are arrogant and presumptuous. So the question should not be, why did God take away the children this way? The question is, why doesn't God take away every child this way? Why doesn't God take away every human being away? Why? Why does God let me live? Why does God let you live? Because we're amazing? Because we're wonderful people? Why does God let me breathe his air and drink his water? Why? Because he is a merciful God. He is a merciful God. That's why. Not only is he merciful, look at to what extent he is merciful. And I haven't finished going through this. I may have to go through it again. I'll finish it off. Because we have all the coming in, so we have to make room for that. Not only God is merciful, but then, for those of us who are sinners, deserving of judgment, God does the unthinkable. He sends his son, who is sinless, to live a perfect life, and then to be crucified and killed, as though he's the worst sinner. So those who are sinners, who deserve the full wrath, and God has never expressed his full wrath, ever. You see moments of anger. This is a moment of anger in Ezekiel. At Sodom and Gomorrah is a moment of anger. With the Canaanites, it's a moment of anger. At the flood, it's a moment of anger. Not his full wrath. Never. His full wrath is expressed once. Once. And only once. At the cross. At the cross. Now, you and I would have never done that. One, we don't deserve life. Two, we're sinners deserving of judgment. Three, he then does the unthinkable and sends his son for sinners. I wouldn't give my son for my wife. And my wife would not give up my son for me. But he gave up his son for sinners. And then we turn to God and say, I don't understand. Why? Really? 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 We don't get it, do we? We think like the world. We need to be shaped by Scripture. Our thoughts need to be shaped by God's Word. So we understand we don't deserve a thing. So when things go wrong in our lives, we don't say, oh God, why, why, why? No. We should humble ourselves quickly. Lord, you are a merciful God. And you have allowed this pain to come into my life out of your merciful heart because my heart is very small and restricted compared to your merciful heart. And my mind is very small and limited in understanding compared to your wisdom. And your love is far greater than my love for my children. Far greater. And should you take away anything, you have every right one, because we don't deserve to live. And you, we live and move and have our being. Two, because we are sinners and deserve judgment. And three, you did the unthinkable in giving up your very son for us. Who are we? What is man that you are so mindful of him? And the son of man that you should visit him. Why would you do this for us? 
That's the question. Ask the right question. Let the word of God shape your thinking. Otherwise, you'll be miserable in life. Miserable. That's why we have so many miserable Christians. We should be joyful when we think of this thought, when it goes down and sinks into our very core, and we think about this, we should get up saying, my goodness, Lord, you are an amazing God. Not, oh my goodness, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this? Please, church, please. Let us pray. Father, forgive us for we don't know what we're doing many times. And yes, you are a merciful God. We cannot thank you enough. Your anger is real. Your wrath is real. And you've spared us that wrath by simply, by simply trusting in you. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you give up your son? Almighty God. And here we are before you. And we're grateful, Lord. We're grateful. For your word, we're grateful that you speak to us. Lord, forgive me at times I become impatient. It took me a long, long time to understand these truths. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be patient with your flock of Christ that is precious to you, that is dear to you. Help me to rebuke when I need to rebuke. Help me to exhort when I need to exhort, to teach when I need to teach, and to do it all with a heart of love that only you can give me. For the rest of the leaders, I pray the same thing. Be glorified in our midst, even now as we're about to break bread together. In Jesus' name, amen.